There's actually a weird, dark story in uh, Matthew 27. In it, a man called Judas Iscariot, you may have, may have heard tell of this fellow, he had been in a, an apprentice and a close personal friend to Jesus of Nazareth. He agrees to sell Jesus out to the very people wanting to kill him to the tune of 30 pieces of silver. Now, scholars aren't exactly sure what kind of currency that was exactly. Based on the likely options, Judas betrays Jesus to the tune of some 200 or so bucks. Now, I don't mind telling you that in my world, $200 is a lot of money, as is likely the case uh, with many of you. But even so, I'm not sure that I would sell a good friend to people likely to kill him for that amount. So it was a bad thing that Judas did. It would have to be at, at least $300 or more for me to consider such an art. And of course, it depends largely on the person. Hey, Bethany, while I'm up here talking, can you close your computer? Can you close your computer and pay attention, please? Thanks. <laughs> You're missing some of these gold jokes I've written into my intro. <laughs> the point is, Judas has other motivations. Uh, both Luke and John's gospel specifically say that, and I quote, Satan entered him. So that's a bummer. But even so, after he gets paid to do this heinous thing, he actually regrets it. In Matthew 27, we read, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And then the story goes on. He says, uh, what is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Jesus, Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, here's why this story is weird. The money itself, the, you know, the inanimate coins aren't somehow energized with evil that we know of, and yet no one wants anything to do with it. Judas wants to give it back. The chief priests don't want it back, so he has to throw the money at them, and then he leaves. It's such a striking image that Rembrandt painted the scene of Judas throwing the coins back. And with the coins thrown at their feet, the chief priests, the ones who have, in this point in the story, conspired to kill an innocent person, they don't even feel right about putting the money into the temple treasury. And when the scene concludes, the blood money has become a field of blood. It wasn't the money, it was the money, uh, it was rather where the money came from. It was the story behind the money. We often overlook the fact that Everything that we have comes with a story. Everything that you buy or wear or eat or drink, all of it has a story. The problem is that we are consumers. We have grown accustomed to a painless and accommodating shopping experience that presents us with an ever-widening buffet of products for consumption at a moment's notice. If knowing the story behind said products complicates the ease and satisfaction of our shopping experience, we'd often prefer not to hear it. But most of you, I suspect, aren't here for stories about products per se, but because you are an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. The thing is, if you follow Jesus, this guy has something to say about everything you do. He's frustrating like that. 
including but certainly not limited to the things that you buy and the story behind those things. So here's my plan for my next few minutes. Give me a little over half hour. We'll, talk, uh, we'll take kind of a brief crash course through the Bible's idea of justice and labor ethics, a broad overview of why our shopping creates problems with the Bible's understanding of justice, justice and labor ethics, and then a few thoughts on what we should do about all that. Then John, Mark, and Shay will come up here and talk about one way we might approach some of those things differently. You guys all right? You feeling sharp? Great. Thank you. Let's do some work. First, let's build a basic biblical theology of justice. We actually have a staggering amount of uh, content to draw from. The Bible has a lot to say about justice, so we'll do more of a bird's eye view type of thing. Now, in the scriptures, the idea of justice as a noun is what our friend Dr. Gary Brashears describes as a community in which all relationships, God, others, self, and the rest of creation, are well-ordered and flourishing as God designed them to be. And if you read the story of the Bible, beginning in Genesis and on through Revelation, you see that God's paradigm of rightly ordered relationships is quite different than the American one because God's paradigm includes both those from other countries and peoples and the so-called worthless person, meaning those who are not uh, economically viable, those who make no social contributions, or those who are on the bottom rungs, the margins of society. Look at this from the Torah. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So as far back as Israel's earliest written guidelines for becoming the people of God to be holy and different, we see Yahweh himself commanding thoughtful and active concern for the poor and for those on the other side of the social and cultural and geographic borders. And what's more, when God's people neglect those commands, this is just one example, God takes it personally. It says in Proverbs, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. In Psalm 12, it says, because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. Or look at this from Zechariah. It says, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the foreless, the far, or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention stubbornly. They turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Now, if these uh, categories for caring for the poor feel a bit broad, I realize we're just dropping down here and there. Yahweh actually personally personally connects these ideas of justice and concern for the poor with what we now call labor ethics. Look at this passage from Deuteronomy 24. In it, Moses is offering his final speech to the people just before he dies, and he summarizes a collection of laws from the Torah, which includes this. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they're poor and counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So what's this passage commanding? Let's pay poor workers, obviously, pay them in a timely fashion. Why? Because they're counting on it, which makes sense. But there's something else as well. God is on their side. He cares about it, and He will take it personally. God's concern for the poor and the oppressed and the foreigner permeates the entire Bible in both the broad and the specific sense. 
And God's contempt for the unjust treatment of laborers continues on into the New Testament. Look at this in James. Pretty intense language. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. In other words, God is on the side of the so-called worthless person, the economically unviable person. And to contribute to the exploitation of, uh, exploitation of such a person for God is an egregious sin that stirs the anger and defensiveness of God Himself. The Old Testament actually closes with the book of Malachi, which includes these haunting words. It says, so I will come to put you on trial. I will be back to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers, their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, at this point in the evening's proceedings, my guess is that so far most of you are still with me. Social justice is all the rage at the moment or, you know, getting angry on social media and calling it social justice. But concern for the poor and the oppressed, at, at least theoretically, isn't a tough sell for most of you, especially in a place like Portland. But the thing is uh, that this isn't about hashtags or virtue signaling. It's about shopping. We are consumers. We're the byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. As consumers, we buy things, food and cosmetics, technology, entertainment. But for the sake of time, we're going to zero in on apparel and talk about that as a broad example for all of this. Now, I'll warn you, it's going to sound pretty bleak for a bit, but hang in there. We're going somewhere with all this. So, we're consumers. As consumers, we purchase, among other things, clothes. So taking this one example, let me show you how quickly and frustratingly complicated things get. The clothes in question that we buy as consumers weren't burped out by a 3D printer yet um, or assembled by machines on a conveyor belt. For the most part, it's actually a three-stage process. First, you have the farming, which is where you grow cotton and shear wool, that kind of thing. Then you have input production, which is where there's the cotton gins and the knitting and the dyeing. And then finally, you have uh, final stage production, which is the cutting and the sewing and the printing. And then it's on to the retailers, and then you buy it. Then our buying creates three dimensions of complication, to put it lightly, in our discipleship to Jesus. The first is with justice. The second is with creation care. And the third is with simplicity. Now, we don't have time to do an in-depth biblical theology of all three things, so the long and short of it is this. Disciples of Jesus are mandated by God to care for creation, to steward the world that God made, and to care for it really well. As disciples of Jesus, we are commanded by our teacher and Lord to embrace a lifestyle of radical simplicity for the sake of radical generosity, to reject excess and the accumulation of money and things in order to embrace a lifestyle of giving stuff away. And of course, as we've already seen, disciples of Jesus are called to a lifestyle of justice that demonstrates active concern for the poor and the marginalized and the abused and the oppressed, we are not to participate in systems of violence or of oppression. Now, imagine that you, as a disciple of Jesus, want to become a more thoughtful shopper. If God feels very seriously about the oppression and mistreatment of laborers and of the poor, you don't want to shop in such a way as to make yourself complicit in such a thing. 
The first problem is that every step in that three-stage process back there requires human labor and massive human abuse, as well as human trafficking and slavery, have been widely reported in every dimension of the industry. Major companies and retailers require the efforts of thousands of people to get what you're wearing all the way from the cotton field or the sheep or the silkworm to the textiles, sewing machines, shipping crates, and, you know, the mall or the department store or whatever. Given the amount of manpower necessary in each stage of the production process in order to generate such a massive stockpile of clothes, major companies, by and large, relegate these processes to developing nations in order to ramp up production and save on money in the process. Now, the fact that your clothes were made overseas does not necessarily imply that they were made unethically, as uh, most of our clothes were made in China or Indonesia, India, and Bangladesh, and so on. The problem is that these companies don't simply have, you know, an H&M factory out in Bangladesh or something like that, managed and staffed by H&M employees. Rather, the company sources their production to cotton farmers and to mills and to factories. It then falls on that company to maintain insight into areas from which they source materials and to uphold the integrity of the farms and the factories and question throughout the developing world and, more to the point, to care for the people that are employed there. By and large, they do not do that, which is bad news given the fact that we buy more clothes than ever before. A 2019 Business Insider essay reported that on average, people bought 60% more garments in 2014 than they did in 2000, but they kept those clothes half as long. To meet demand, fast, fa fast fashion brands are uh, amplifying production to a degree never thought possible. H&M offers 12 and 16, or uh, between 12 and 16 collections per year, while another company, Zara, puts out 24 collections per year. And like I said, it takes people to make all those clothes. Fashion is one of the most labor-intensive industries in the world, directly employing at least 60 million people. The Global Slavery Index estimates that among the 40 million people living in modern slavery today, many of those people, if not most of those people, are working in the supply chains of Western clothing brands. And women represent the overwhelming majority of those garment workers. This means that there's something of a conflict of interest in our re recent and totally justifiable outcry to eradicate the oppression of women when it does not also consider one of the primary ways women are oppressed in the world today. Of course, you don't have to have everything figured out before you take a stand against evil. You should just do it. But it's a bit of a bummer to see people with a platform calling for the ethical treatment of women who are also decked out in fast fashion brands, and thus knowingly or unknowingly participating in the mistreatment of women around the world. And since these issues of slavery and abuse so thoroughly permeate the entire industry, it's not so easy to sort out. You can't simply ask, oh, is this company good or is this company bad, as it all comes from the same basic places. The poorest people on the planet are the cheapest to employ for the sake of fast fashion. At best, they work to the bone for grossly inadequate wages, and at worst, they're trafficked into slavery or abused. And many of those workers are children. The International Labor Organization estimates that 170 million kids are engaged in child labor, defined by the UN as, and I quote, work for which the child is either too young, work done below the required minimum age, or work which, because of its detrimental nature or conditions, is altogether considered unacceptable for children and is prohibited. Many of those 170 million kids work within the fashion industry. 
A recent report by the Center for Research on Multinational Corporations and something called the India Committee of the Netherlands revealed that the common practice of factories um, uh, that are under the employ of Western clothing brands is to recruit young girls under the pretense of escaping poverty or the hope of having regular food or an education. And that same report said, and I quote, in reality, they are working under appalling conditions that amount to modern day slavery and the worst forms of child labor all in the name of fast, inexpensive fashion collections cranked out by the dozen, apparently, each year. And since we're getting rid of our clothes almost as fast as we buy them, the United Nations Environment Program claims that the equivalent of one garbage truck full of clothes is burned or dumped in a landfill every second. The United Nations Economic Commission for Europe and the World Resources Institute says that up to 85% of textiles go into landfills each year which I also learned this week is enough to fill the Sydney Harbor annually. And of course, we have to wash all these new clothes. We have more clothes than ever before, so we're constantly washing them, which is a new thing. And uh, it releases 500,000 tons of microfibers into the ocean each year, which is the equivalent of 50 billion plastic bottles. That's all, I'm not a mathematician or a professor. Uh, that's a lot of plastic bottles. Greenpeace says that many of those fibers are polyester, which is a plastic found in an estimated 60% of garments. Producing polyester releases two to three times more carbon emissions than cotton, and the polyester does not break down in the ocean. The fashion industry makes up 10% of human humanity's carbon emissions altogether, and it is the second largest consumer of world, uh, water worldwide. Apparently, it takes 700 gallons of water to produce one cotton shirt. It's a lot of water. 2,000 gallons of water to produce a pair of jeans. That's more than enough for one person to drink eight cups per day for 10 years. And the fashion industry doesn't just consume water. It's responsible for 20% of all industrial water pollution worldwide. Now, to summarize all that, and realize I'm talking fast. It's on purpose. To summarize, all very bad things. The modern, uh, or, but the thing is, the, the more public awareness increases around issues of slavery and pollution in the industry, fashion brands are left to do lots of damage control for the sake of their bottom line. When I first gave a lecture like this one, it was actually up Bridgetown uh, years ago now, one of the issues making headlines at that time was widespread crimes against humanity in the cotton fields of Uzbekistan, which led to public outcry and boycotts, and eventually many companies began to boy boycott Uzbek cotton. Of course, boycotting Uzbek cotton does not mean any company overhauled their entire practice. They just responded to public pressure in one specific regard for the sake of their image. Some companies, like uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, apparently, and Forever 21, refused to do even that. They just said, we don't care. In past years, having any insight into these issues um, had been nearly impossible. You didn't know what happened unless you saw a headline about it. And even then, it was few and far between. And each company's vested interest uh, was in preserving its own financial interest and thus its reputation. So they, it's in their best interest to keep this stuff under wraps. But given the ever-increasing wealth of information we now have access to via the internet and documentaries and more um, nonprofits coupled with the growing awareness of these issues and folks willing to call iffy practices into question, companies are becoming less and less capable of pulling the proverbial wool over our eyes. In the last few years, 
reports published by the Baptist World Aid and an organization called the Responsible Sourcing Network assessed the policy, public disclosure, traceability and transparency, transparency and ethical labor of dozens of major brands and assigned failing grades to buckle up. Here's a list of companies with failing grades according to those reports. I'm going to read them fast. Aeropostale, Carter, Skechers, Express, Fruit of the Loom, Lacoste, Quicksilver, Walmart, surprise, uh, Abercrombie, American Eagle, Ar Arcturus, Gildan, Nike, Nordstrom, Macy's, Gymboree, Costco, Bed Bath & Beyond, Sears, Forever 21. And this was funny. Urban Outfitters, year after year, gets a big fat zero on the scoring chart. To name a few. The thing is about all those things though, maybe not all of them, I venture a guess most of, if not all those things, if you Google some of these companies, you will likely find right there on their website, entire pages dedicated to all kinds of flowery prose about their sustainability and their ethical practices. These are called voluntary codes of conduct. And they exist because the brands have consistently fought laws that would regulate their practices and said, no, 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 no. Don't bring the law into this. We will do it voluntarily. And they make up codes of their own design. But in the 2015 documentary, The True Cost, here's what the director of the Institute of Labor Rights had to say about those codes. If you write to any of these companies, they'll send you their code of conduct and it's beautiful. And it says, oh yes, we take responsibility for the conditions under which our product is made, you know, the product that you buy, all the factories where we produce, we require them to respect the minimum wage laws, you know, all of the laws of the country, to respect women, not to hire children, uh, no forced labor, um, no excessive overtime hours, all that stuff. Um, but when we submitted a bill in Congress a few years ago or worked with, worked with people to do that, we called it the, the Decent Working Conditions and Fair Competition Act, the companies responded in one voice, oh no, that would be an impediment to free trade. We can't, we can't have rules, we can't have, we can't have that. They want to keep it with voluntary codes of conduct. Now, they, you know, they've fought for and they've won laws to protect their stuff and their interests. But, you know, what about the workers? The workers are left with voluntary codes of conduct. And what we see in case after case after case is that those voluntary codes of conduct are not worth the paper that they're written on. So, here's the bad news. When it comes to... Uh the big brands and fast fashion, I'm not convinced personally that there is an ethical way to shop. And the reason is that the world simply can't handle giant corporations that crank out millions upon millions of sneakers or jackets or jeans or whatever it might be without taking a massive toll on the whole world in the process. So the giant manufacturers and the brand names, the stores in the mall, the department stores, I doubt very much that any of them are ethical in the sense that they, that, you know, from farm to mill to factory to store, they reject the exploitation of other human beings and the planet and the animal kingdom and all that. Meaning that if your closet begins to sound and feel like 30 pieces of silver, if shopping at the malls feels like spending blood money, this is not as simple as Googling a brand or ruling out a couple of main offenders. But hang in there. So before I get done and John, Mark, and Shay come up here, I have a few thoughts about where we go from here personally. Here's the thing. I started asking these questions uh, 
more than a decade ago now. So much has changed since the first time I realized that my closet felt like 30 pieces of silver. Matter of fact, I've been up here several times now over the years going on about all these same things. The data and figures have evolved typically for the worse. Frankly, I was kind of shocked when I looked at them, the ones from this year. But at the end of the day, it all leads to the same bottom line. As disciples of Jesus, we are going to have to rethink the way we shop. So before my time is up, I have three suggestions as the holiday shopping season encroaches. Each of them will, I'm afraid, require a certain amount of self-denial, which is promising as that's exactly how Jesus taught his disciples to live. The first one, to my estimation, is an easy one. Buy used. Buying clothes that someone else has given away reduces waste. It keeps jackets and jeans out of landfills a little longer. It cuts down on industrial, industrial and environmental degradation. It funnels no new monies into companies that abuse human beings and the environment. Uh, if you're counting, that's four good things that that does. So frequent your local thrift store, the Goodwill or, or the Portlandy equivalent that costs several times as much for the same exact content. Um, something for everyone is the point. When I, need, <laughs> when I need new uh, boots every couple of years, I've been wearing this, this exact kind. Just need to find something you like, stick with it. I uh, go to this website called poshmark.com. I type in the exact same kind, my size, and then there you go. Some other guy's buyer remorse keeps my feet dry for another couple of years. Thanks, buddy. Um, if you're wanting to buy used, it's a site I recommend, even though uh, it's more like if you're looking for something specific, otherwise it starts to look like a junk heap. Um, you'll find retailers that are even getting into used sites like that, trying to move new products from big brands. So you have to actually do the work of, you know, finding items from some person in California or Maine or something and looking for a jacket that doesn't have a hole in it, that kind of thing. But you can do it, buy used stuff. Second, there are actually brands working to go about things very differently. That's what John, Mark, and Shea are about to discuss. But it is decidedly not fast fashion. One company I often mention is called Everlane. Their whole shtick is radical transparency. So if you want a t-shirt, you go on their website, you learn about the exact factory where the shirt was made, uh, Who's, you can see who made it and learn about the materials that were sourced and where from and how much it costs the company before the markup. There's more and more examples of companies like this one. Of course, this means you won't be able to like waltz into the mall or shop downtown and browse stuff and try it on. It's a slower process of ordering and maybe even sending stuff back or going to one place with not a lot of options, which is fine. Consumer goods, not instantly accessible. Can you imagine such a thing? Finally, and this is... Uh, I think the most fundamental and foundational of all these pragmatic points, just buy less stuff. Turns out you don't really need to buy clothes that often. I've been wearing the same four shirts and two pair of jeans for seven years now. <laughs> I counted it up before I wrote this. Of course, uh, the jeans typically unravel and fall apart after a while, and um, my wife finally says, those are over. Um, so when I replace something, I only buy used stuff. If I have anything else uh, in my drawer, it's because someone gave it to me or I found it in the lost and found here at First Baptist. <laughs> and guess what? I feel just fine and I'm alive. Um, my wife, Abby, is, is more interested in clothes than I am uh, and easier on the eyes than I am, but we share the same conviction on the issue. So she only shops to replace damaged or worn out clothes 
like one jacket, and if the jacket wears out, a new jacket, almost entirely used. And she's told me before I came, she's like, I find what I need at Goodwill almost all the time. And it doesn't seem like it, you know. The only time she shops for clothes just for the heck of it, if someone gives her a gift card for Christmas or a birthday or something like that. And even then, only through those few trusted companies that she knows. Now, of course, I realize I'm not going to convince everyone to wear one outfit or, you know, some such thing. That's totally fine. Thing is, for many of us, if we want to grow in our discipleship to Jesus and to follow him with integrity, there will have to be major changes in the way that we shop. But at the end of the day, what is all this deliberation over? It's stuff. It's just stuff. And here's the twist. I believe that freeing yourself from the stranglehold of stuff is something every disciple of Jesus not just should do, but must do, regardless of where that stuff came from. If you feel as though you need a certain brand of shoes or a certain type of phone so badly, that the thought of not buying it, even to avoid supporting slavery, scares you, then that's a telling realization. If we might suspect the thing it is that we want to buy or own or might indeed be the product of injustice and we remain irresolute in giving it up, maybe that speaks to an issue deeper than where we shop. I've been thinking this week about another story in Matthew, uh, just as jarring as Judas and the 30 pieces of silver, but it's in a different way. It's from Matthew 19, and a lot of you know the story. It's a rich fellow approaches Jesus, and he wants an in on the whole kingdom of God thing. Um, man approaches Jesus. He says, teacher, how do I get eternal life? Jesus weirdly says, keep the commandments. The guy says, which ones? Jesus rattles off a handful of the relational Ten Commandments. And the guy says, done, I've already done all that. That can't be it. What am I missing? So Jesus tells him, you know the story, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. And the guy can't hack it. He goes away sad. And Jesus gets even more intense saying to his friends that observe the whole exchange that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for it is for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. One commentator I read translated Jesus as saying, and I quote, Amen, I tell you, it will be practically impossible for a well-off person to get into the kingdom of God. So this shopping season, consider this. Throughout all four Gospels, when we hear stories of Jesus approaching someone, whoever they are, wherever they are, and, and he calls them directly, follow me, in every case, they drop their nets or they abandon their boats or they leave behind their careers and lifestyles and worldviews. In every case, except this one. And notice the, the text, if you know the story, doesn't accuse this man of using his money to do injustice. In fact, some scholars assume that given the great value for poor relief among first, among first century Jews, he could have very well been a charitable person. The text doesn't say he was stingy or even debauched or scandalous with his great wealth. All we know is that he has it and he doesn't want to give it all away. And we, as consumers, enjoy a lifestyle of fast fashion and food and gadgetry with impunity because nearly all of us are, by global standards anyway, very wealthy. So we don't like a story like this one. So what often happens with this story is the panic scramble to point out things like, yeah, but Jesus didn't command all of his disciples to sell everything and give it to the poor, which is true. He could have, and he didn't. But let me read you guys a couple of scholars on this passage. Robert Gundry argued that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue the command. 
Or this from Dale Bruner. He wrote, We believe that Jesus intends every disciple of Jesus in every generation to hear this command to the rich man as a command to them to do something with their assets that will indicate that their discipleship to Jesus is real. All of us are addressed by Jesus in this story at the point of our possessions and are asked to say, Is it I, Lord? Readers should be careful to avoid the particularist, only the rich man interpretation of our text. And every disciple, something needs to change economically if we are to follow Jesus' word with integrity. Now, here's why I've gone in this direction with the whole lecture thing. You can become a more responsible shopper with lots of research and hard work. A lot of people who don't follow Jesus at all have already done that and they're doing it well. But that won't necessarily transform you into the kind of person truly set free from the tyranny of materialism or greed or vanity. If Jesus is asking you to change the way you shop, if he said something to you like, actually sell everything you have and give it to the poor, what would you feel? Or what would you say to something like that? I know that's an uncomfortable question to ask for everyone, myself included. But remember, Jesus doesn't provoke for the simple sake of making you sit in your discomfort. Almost all of us understand that true and good and beautiful things are in many ways very costly. Friendship, for example, or your vocation, you know, a dream, marriage, family, parenting, community. None of these things are easy or simple or straightforward. In everything, Jesus is teaching us that if we allow him to empower us to let go of anything and everything that stands between us and him, we will be more free. Jesus isn't calling us to a monk-like, disciplined, and miserable kind of self-denial. He's teaching us self-denial as the door through which we access what he called life and life to the fullest. And here the conversation transitions from nuances of ethical shopping and the bigger and broader idea of freedom. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas, in his commentary on Matthew, notes that Jesus concludes this stark exchange about the rich man, pointing out that with God all things are possible, if you know the story. And Hauerwas goes on to write, Our temptation is to think that Jesus' replies intended to let us off the hook. Being rich is a problem, we may think, but God will take care of us, the rich, the only way God can. Yet such a response fails to let the full weight of Jesus' observation about wealth have the effect it should. Jesus' reply challenges not only our wealth, but our very concept of salvation. To be saved means that our lives are no longer our own. Honestly, I've done talks like these long enough to realize that with enough factoids and data, we can come into a better understanding of the way that we shop. But at the end of the day, Jesus wants to set us free from materialism, which makes solving the other problem a whole heck of a lot easier. So that's my hope and prayer for myself and for you guys. May Jesus set us free and set us free indeed. Now turn around to the people around you and talk about all that stuff you just heard.